This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial conflict. Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty! The only thing we have to fear is fear itself! Sooner or later, though. You always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, Please make yourself at home. I want to thank you, very Dust member, for making this program possible. Tonight's special guest was a sports anchor, news anchor, reporter, documentary producer, writer, PBS host, truth seeker, and co-creator of Conscious Media Network. It is a treat for me, as I'm sure it will be for you. Regina Meredith is tonight's very special guest. We'll discuss her amazing journey, which is very inspirational and enlightening, as she calls it, her solo journey. Regina Meredith will be with us shortly. To listen to the full interview, just go to VeritasRadio.com and click on the subscribe link. You'll receive your login immediately. Remember, Veritas is censorship and commercial free and survives on your voluntary subscriptions only. Imagine if you had to listen to commercials every few minutes. This can only happen with your help. Become a member today. And visit the Veritas store, where you can find a lot of our products. To get in touch with me, click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And now, get ready to open a window and see the world through the soul's perspective. Regina Meredith's journey takes the fear out of understanding humanity's deepest roots and reflects back our true entitlement to limitless creation. 
How did the human species come into creation? Do we choose our gene pool? Why do we as humans require outside guidance? Why is alternative healing an alternative when even medical doctors send their difficult patients there as a last resort? Why do we take away from the children when we should give them a voice? How do we break the hypnosis and unearth our own truths? For this and much more, Regina Meredith is coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. This is David Icke, and you're listening to Veritas. Regina Meredith is a woman who chose to live on planet Earth at a time when most astounding awakenings to knowledge of all kinds is unfolding. For the past three decades, Regina has chased stories from environmental degradation, spiritual unfolding, conscious eating, government cover-ups, extraterrestrial contact, and much more as both a journalist and as a human being. One of the major statements of her professional life has resulted in the creation of Conscious Media Network, which is a co-venture with her husband, Scott. They have been broadcasting for over five years, and their journey has expanded the richness of their lives beyond compare, taking them to parts of the world and parts of the mind that they feel privileged to have experienced. And to learn more about Regina Meredith, Conscious Media Network, and her new book, Solo Journey. Visit her website at reginameredith.com and cnn.tv. And directly from the Sierra foothills of California, I would like to welcome, and I'm so privileged to welcome back Regina Meredith to Veritas. Hello, Regina. Welcome back. How are you? Oh, hello, Mel. I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me on. It's good to speak with you again. We had a lot of fun last time up at James's place. That's right. It's my pleasure. And that's why I said welcome back. In case anybody, if, if you go to our section of our website, uh, Veritas TV, you'll see a video that that uh, that I took last year at uh, James Gilliland's ranch. And it was a, a good opening, a good uh, precursor to this interview. But you recently wrote a book, Solo Journey. Am I saying that right? Yes. Yeah, so S-O-U-L-O, Solo Journey, uh, obviously a little play on words. Absolutely. And Beyond what I read on the bio, and I know a lot of my listeners around the world know who you are, but there may be, may be a few who don't know who you are. Just give us a bit of a background of yourself beyond what I read. Oh, goodness. Um, um, as we'll talk about a little bit later, most likely, uh, there, there are pivotal events in all of our lives that shape who we become, how we think, and how we engage in life. And I think, for me, that happened at such an early age. I have no idea what I would have been had this event not occurred. And it was one of those things that changes you so fundamentally. And as a result of this, 
I became an independent thinker at a very early age. I did not, I can't recall at all, really, a time in life when I was young that I really gauged my interests, my behavior, or anything um, by anyone else's yardstick. And, you know, obviously we all have a need to be loved and have friendships. But beyond the obvious of enjoying, you know, usually one exclusive friendship at a time, I was a pretty quiet, private person. Um, I spent a lot of my time wandering in my mind to places that some people don't because they're busy either trying to please others, uh, trying to gain something through relationships, and I just didn't have that normal context in life. So I was living more or less in my own little psychological world of exploration. And so when the time came to open up to some of the things that I heard you mention as you were introducing me, there were no uh, barriers to that. There was no resistance. And one thing that I read from your book is that uh, you don't like the word, and this, there's so many similarities in, in what you went through to get where you are, and, and that I like to explore, but you don't like to use the word worship. You don't like to worship, and that's something that I could never understand, because that word, immediately when I hear it, it disempowers me. It gives the power to somebody else, and you think. Absolutely. Uh, and I never have. Uh, even when I was a little girl and had to go to Sunday school every week until I uh, graduated from high school and went away to college, uh, that was part of my background. Is It was uh, church and Sunday school. Even then, I felt this curious kind of relationship in a young mind that hadn't really figured out exactly how things work with uh, I was raised a, a Lutheran, a Missouri Synod Lutheran, which is really quite a dry experience <laughs> for anyone who's had it. Um, but still, I was raised with the consciousness around the entity known as Jesus. And I always thought, privately, this being would be so upset to see how people are using his name to justify this and justify that, you know, and I never had, it was never a matter of worship, even in religion, even with, again, with Jesus in our religion or God. Um, there was a, a kind of a respect and a wondering more than anything if, if there is, if there are intelligent entities who are able to watch over or guide on some level, surely they'd have to be more than anything just either disappointed or embarrassed by what we're, what we're doing here. So that took care of that kind of worship. And then secondly, again, maybe it was because I was um, more or less a loner, but like you say in your experiences, it never felt right to give my own personal sovereignty away in worship of another. And, you know, the interesting thing is we've learned now as all of the structures around us are crumbling and a lot of the people that were considered to be our traditional leaders, and whether it is religion or politics or certainly in the world of business and finance, our icons, we have learned that any worship was misplaced. Um, as these structures have begin revealing for what they are. And it's true on any level. I mean, oftentimes we'll even worship a spouse, which is setting ourselves up for some kind of fall or, or a disappointment in doing so. It's just misappropriated energy to assume that you're lesser and less sovereign on some level as a being than any other being in the universe. And I remember serving as an altar boy from the age of 7 to 17, and then looking behind me and seeing Jesus on the cross and thinking, 
Really? This person wants yeah. to wants to have us in, in fear and in shame all the time? I don't think so. Somebody uh -huh. must have decided that for, for, for him. But 1985, KTXL Newsroom. Tell us the example of one of the stories you reported during the evening news when you felt you were an agent of bad news. You remember that? Yes. Uh, the one I brought up in the book, and there were many such, uh, many such occasions, but this one really um, struck me because I realized how hopeless it was in terms of relaying any true information and how my hands were tied. In fact, I, didn't, I don't think I put in there that there was a potential lawsuit over my handling of this situation that the station uh, managers had to finesse behind the scenes, and that was... Um, no, no, I'm sorry. That's that one. I didn't put in there. That's a second. That was another one. Let's go with one you're talking about, which had to do with the mass murder of yes. uh, a man who had killed his wife and his children, and then turned the gun on himself. And we've all heard of these situations. But by this time, as I'm reporting this, I mean obviously the images were coming in. The newswire, you know, was reporting the more grisly details. I was aware that I was giving this news to people just as they were getting ready to go to bed at night. And to me, there was something, really, I, I was an agent of bad news, and, and I was really putting people into a mindset to fall into their sleep and dream world with these incredibly heavy negative impressions. Now, that was one part of it. The second part of it was I had already begun my journey of asking a lot deeper questions as to what we are as a soul, what our uh, relationship to each other are as souls. And that's what struck me above all else is rather than just writing the story as is, I was, I was wondering and musing to what was the agreement between these souls? You know, was this agreed upon on some level by all of them? Uh, what kind of, we classically call it karma, I call it just balancing of energies, was occurring as a result of this one violent act that wiped out an entire family. And one can speculate all day long, but that's really where my mind was going as, you know, the, the news would come in across the wire day in and day out. I was always looking to make sense of it on a deeper level. Now, obviously, I couldn't share it. And if I did choose to speak up uh, and use anything other than the modifying terms of allegedly and so forth and any of the other kinds of heinous situations out there. Reportedly, yeah, all of that. Uh, of course, that's when you get into potential lawsuit situations where a trial could be um, influenced by the reporter, the news anchor, in my case's uh, word. So I, everything was tempered. Uh, it skewed toward the negative and tempered. But for me, it was really about interfacing with these these dramas of the soul, for lack of a better word, day in and day out, um, that captured my fascination during the process. How did you, a sports anchor, news anchor, reporter, documentary producer, write it, writer and, and PBS host, reconcile your career then with new terms like soul agreements and, and karma when you discuss a story of uh, of mass murder and, and and children coming to this earth and and being killed so quickly how do you reconcile this well as i stated in my book i had i was already on my path of discovery and Aside from having a lot of more of the paranormal types of experiences and developing some of those aspects of myself, 
I had also come into contact with a source of information that, for lack of a better description, was I would compare it to be very, very similar to what Edgar Casey was. Mm-hmm. Now, Edgar Casey is well documented. Every, you know, everyone in, in our world knows who Edgar Casey is. Certainly, um, the woman the information came to uh, is really kind of lost to history in that sense, and she remained in obscurity um, mostly by choice. And so, although the information was as profound as what has been documented through Edgar Casey, very few people ever had access to it, and I feel very uh, fortunate that. Timing and circumstance brought uh, me into her life and their life and a few of us together to have a chance to uh, hear a different point of view on pretty much everything. And then again, looking at life from the soul's perspective rather than from our personality, family dynamic, human uh, perspective. And so when I realized that every soul chooses this path they're on. There are no accidents in terms of birth and incarnating. And they were the the entities we spoke with were very, very clear about that. Everyone's here by choice. Everyone has always been here by choice. Um, it started seeping into my understanding that because one is small and immature still in, in a young human body, has nothing to do with what's gone on as a being. Uh, throughout their travels, throughout time and throughout space and the experience they've had. You're talking about oftentimes a very advanced soul or wise soul, sometimes a soul that's had a lot of experience and is choosing to come and balance some things out. What I learned was that to judge another person is absolutely futile because whatever it is you think you see may have very little to do with what they actually are here to do and who they actually are. So this was really critical to my thinking, especially when having to look at how horribly uh, a situation had gone for a little child, particularly with children, because we always think, innocence, how can this happen to an innocent? But if we realize we're all vastly creative, intelligent beings who've been traveling a long time together, then it changes things. It just means you're talking about a small body. And how did you... As a journalist, I think that you try to kill rumor with fact, and you always want to you want to validate and corroborate information. Did you find any validation when you experienced your first session with the, how do you call it, ERA or ARA? Okay, now let me just explain what happened in the first dynamic. There's a being I mentioned in the book called uh, the Guardian. That's not what they call themselves. It's what other beings called that one. Hmm. And so they just left the name as the guardian that was my original contact that's the being that was speaking through the woman uh, known as linda davis and um aura came later on there are dynamics that happen just as with edgar casey he needed to be with certain people in order for his being to be able to completely relax and then connect with the other side, what's on the other side beyond the veil. It was the same with Linda. The relationship with the guardian where she would go into another dimensional field, it was really quite an amazing process of channeling. This was not, a lot of people call channeling uh, or refer to channeling um, when they're actually doing a reading, for example. Channeling is really to give over to a separate 
consciousness entirely. Um, and there's no lens, no filter, no personality of the the human vehicle present. And that's what was going on. And just the same as Edgar Casey, where he really had no idea until afterward, until it was he had read the recordings, what had come through him. It was very, very much the same with Linda on that level. So just to establish, there was first the guardian for many, many years, and then the person that facilitated those channelings was her husband, who died. And then a couple of years after that, the other being who is closely aligned with the guardian, same kind of soul source energy field, that one is the one that came through later with Linda and I working together just to clarify that. So now that that's clarified, what was your original question about the information source? Well, you always want validation and corroboration. And, and yes. somebody, I, I presume that at the time, you were still with the mainstream media, right? Yes. So how did you find validation and corroboration with all this uh, that we cannot uh, touch, that is an intangible? Um, well, first of all, my own perceptions of life, experiences I'd had that were deeply personal, um, visions I had had, for example, um, that would, no one would have any way of knowing. Those were very directly and specifically addressed during those channelings. And so I felt as though it was a little disconcerting to feel that someone, some something can see you that thoroughly. Um, so I relaxed fairly early on in terms of questioning whether or not this entity was able to see. Um, because through my own experience, again and again, they were seeing things that uh, even an ordinary um, psychic or reader, a really good one, would not be able to ascertain. So there was, I was getting validation on that level. And then it reversed itself a bit as I would go on and make my own discoveries. And I did a lot of experimenting. I didn't use ayahuasca or any of those things because I was able to journey out um, not only on my own but within this little group of people too. We were able to go and see and bring back information and then oftentimes that information would be very specifically validated. And so this was a period where I was learning to develop confidence in my own inner psyche, my own field of intuition, which was going, I was going to need later on uh, to serve me in other capacities, and, and it truly, it has. I mean, it saved my life and more. What did you, what was the, 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 the summary of what you were able to extract from, from these uh, channelings, if you will? Well, they went on over the course of 25 years. Oh, wow. So, you know, I've always had access to this until very recently, so, um, I in the book you'll notice that I would drop in a little comment from the, the being called Ara here and there. That would have been from a continued dialogue over the course of years as I would become more curious about something and make greater discoveries and look for valid. It became a really a process of uh, just looking for validation because I was told repeatedly almost from the beginning, you can do this. Go get your own information. If you choose to talk to us about it later, we'll we'll let you know. You know, we'll help you out. So I was I had to do the heavy lifting on that level. But every now and then, I would still be given just kind of eye popping information or a piece that I couldn't conceive of that would tie everything together. So it's been like that. I've had the advantage of that for 25 years, which obviously 
has spurred me on to <laughs> greater curiosity, number one, but it also has allowed me to work in this field with ease and comfort because there's nothing that I find particularly surprising. That said, the central theme that intrigued me beyond anything else as I was involved with and speaking with these uh, beings was the notion of the history of the human species because we seem to be so, A, unique, and B, um, completely unaware on one level of our own innate functioning. And I've always been... I've always been very curious about that. Why is it that some people can simply quiet themselves, reach into the unified field of consciousness and bring back information with ease, and other people don't know whether they should take a job or not? What is blocking us? And so the story of the origins of humankind, I mean, certainly, that to me was the biggest impression I was left with. And most of the other questions, and stories came from that. And, you know, as I always say, the biggest conspiracy of all time is the truth about our own potential. We seem yes. to be limited by, you know, politicians, by the medical industry, by clergy, you name it. But you mentioned something very interesting, uh, how in schools, for example, you put our, our children to go to daycare or kinder, and immediately we start seeing how they they are forced to specialize into something. And most of the time it's stuff that they don't like. If you, if you poll most people, you ask them if they enjoy what they do, they usually say no. And I like it that, for example, I have people saying to me, Mel, why don't you just do finish your PhD? And I just, I have no interest whatsoever because I want to be able to see the trees and the forest. I don't want to be specialized into one thing. And that's something that I sense with you too, while reading your book, that you went out there and you wanted answers in so many different topics. So, yes. do you agree? Yes. Yes, I don't want to be limited. I want to be able to ultimately reach into 100% of my own capability while still in a physical body. I mean, that's my personal desire. And anything I learn along the way, as a journalist and someone who loves to share, um, I it's my journey to help share that information and my discoveries um, with others so that we can reach that together. That That's, that's my love. Why do you think then, it, it, you use the word duality, I do too, but recently I, I'm using more the word polarity. Why do you think there's more, so much polarity or duality and the fact that most people don't know what their life purpose is? Uh, you just hit on it a bit ago, and I think you said it well, is that we are so deeply programmed from the time we take a physical body the programming begins. So let's say we've chosen a particular country, a particular culture, a particular family or bloodline to incarnate into. That's going to dictate to an extent the field of possibility for us right there. Um, Now, again, as that is our choice, you can say, well, then what you can do within that framework is what you have chosen within that lifetime. So then you have the problem of um, 
not only our parents having their own uh, beliefs and desires for us, and then they place us in institutions that reflect that. So now we're in a public school system. Um, right now, it's, it's particularly sad with the mandate simply to test kids out and not really teach them much of anything. Mm-hmm. Um, you have that. You have then the belief systems that are very deeply impacted by whatever spiritual or religious upbringing, and it, and then you have cultural, um, societal uh, influences such as the media. And when you get through with every way in which our soul, <laughs> our soul has been imprinted by the time we reach even three or four, five, six, seven years old, uh, you already have collapsed, collapsed a lot of fields of possibility there. And we do it unwittingly also to our children because we're just reflecting back what we were programmed to do. And so for me, the critical factor here is if anyone who has a young child um, can just stop the programming and begin to pay very close attention to where this child's potential seems to be showing themselves, um, what seems to be capturing their imagination, and what gives them joy, and then encouraging those things outside of everything else that we think is right for them, I think we have a chance at our species. We could literally within one generation, if parents would simply do this, um, have the possibility of creating a very refined species of human beings, one that's naturally nurturing, one that doesn't have a need for the dreaded discipline word because when you're doing what you have come to do, what your soul has also uh, planned to carry out or learn or experience in this lifetime, the resistance just drops away. There's, there's no need for discipline. You just want to get up and do what you do each day and you want to do it with joy and you, off, you want to offer it really freely to the world. Well, is that how most of the people you know are living? You know, I see this as a parallel, Regina, with a computer. We buy a computer. Well, right now it includes programming, but let's say the hard drive was completely wiped out, formatted. That's a baby. The baby and the computer, we have to put programming at, for them to operate. And if they don't function, if the, if the, 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 the child strays and, and starts saying, I want to do this and that, and that does not conform the expectations of the parents, we have to put them back on track or the computer, we have to remove the virus. So at this age in my life, it's almost as if I'm trying to defragment my hard drive or my brain from yeah. all those teachings, from all the programming so that we can finally get it. Has that happened to you? Yeah, um, not as much as most people. Uh, the reason being, as I mentioned early on, I really didn't allow myself. It wasn't that I didn't allow. It didn't take. Um, I chose to incarnate into a family that did not have extended family, so I had no fam- familial influences, really. Um, I felt like a free agent by the time I was certainly two, three years old. Um, I lived in San Francisco which the West was very open anyway at that time, being born into that that area at that time. It was much more open than saying being born into uh, a family, a a large extended family in Naples, Italy, where there are a lot of expectations. Mm -hmm. There's a a lot of programming going on. I had very little programming, really, in part because I chose that kind of... um, kind of that bubble existence. It was a type of, again, a loner, a type of isolation of sorts. So as a result, 
as I went through life, I didn't know what I was doing. I, in fact, I kind of beat myself up from time to time thinking, you know, I really should put more energy into this or into that, but I feel I, I don't want to, so I wouldn't. And of course, you know the problems that can cause for a young person, especially academically. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I loved it, I had straight A's and would excel. If I didn't like it, I wouldn't do the work. I did. I just would not put my energy there. I didn't want to. I didn't have. Didn't feel I had to impress anyone or make anyone else happy um, about my endeavors. <laughs> so I, I really was a bit of a handful on that level. So that extended into adult life. I was just up for. Hmm, that sounds interesting. Okay, I'll try that for a while, or maybe I'll move here and try that for a while. And started connecting with what turned out to be my soul's real purpose in in this life. On one level, we have many, many purposes, but certainly in terms of work and that kind of endeavor goes. I connected with my field of endeavor very early in life, and it was all through bizarre circumstance, but as a result, I've I've had the advantage of living very closely um, to what I feel I'm here to do. Even though I knew I was only in training stages along the way, I didn't have that terrible resistance within. Like, God, what am I doing here? I just, I'm, I'm really screwing up. I, I know I should be doing more. I didn't have a lot of that. And I think this book, for, for most people who know you and those who, who are getting to know you now for the first time, it opens such a wide, large window of your life, and I appreciate that you included a lot of it. For example, how can you remember this, what happened to you at the age of two when your mom was pregnant with your sister, and they, as you say, they didn't have an extended family at that time, and the same thing with my parents. My father could not take time off to to take care of me while my mother was, was, was at the hospital, and is a very interesting story, and I'd like you to share it with us if you could. Yes. Well, my father was, they were very young. Uh, they were, uh, I think my mother was barely 20 when she was pregnant with me. My parents were the same age, and they had come from Texas. Uh, my father from Texas, my mother from Minnesota, and they were just young people that were trying to uh, make an inroad in their own life. My mother worked as an operator. Uh, for, I think, Pacific Bell at the time, and my father was a young insurance clerk just getting started, having just come from the oil fields of Texas. And so arriving in San Francisco was really an eye-opener for both of them. They were country kids, and here they were married, and within, I think, minutes ended up pregnant with me (laughs) and had not really planned that. My mother turned out to be fertile enough that it it, made the the jump through whatever technology was there at the time. (laughs) Valentine's Day. Uh, Valentine's Day. They celebrated Valentine's Day. And so, of course, I was born nine months to the day, November 14th, um, after Valentine's Day. So here we are, and they... um, My mother was able to hire a babysitter, a French woman, uh, for the first two years of my life. Um, Economically, it was still feasible with she and my father working to do that. But then the second child was on the way. Again, the result of another uh, Valentine's Day celebration. She was due the same day I was due. Actually, a few days earlier, I think. And uh, my sister, as my mother was preparing for the birth, she understood there was no one to leave me with. She didn't have any siblings or uh, any close friends even, for that matter, uh, yet. 
so I was, the decision was made that I would be put in a children's receiving home, which is where you take children when you give them up for either foster care or adoption. And although that sounds really weird at face value, her thinking was another woman in our apartment building had, um, she worked there. And so my mother felt that the woman could at least kind of check in and keep an eye on me at a distance while I was there. Again, assuming we're only talking about uh, maybe 48 to 72 hours maximum, she she would go in, have the baby that day or the next day and be right out of the hospital. But that's not what ended up happening. And my sister was another 10 days or so. She was overdue. And then by the time they had my sister, the nursery had an ear infection and they didn't let anyone out of quarantine if there was an infection in the nursery. So essentially some weeks passed. But what happened, and I think the event that you're referring to in the book, which was very dramatic and very emotional for everybody, was when you have a children's receiving home situation where the child is going to be up for adoption, there's a little viewing area. It's a glass a glass room with glass windows where the prospective parents can watch a child um, play um, or whatever it is they're doing. And this makes perfect sense. The child has absolutely no connection to whoever those people are outside, you know, on the other side of the window. So there's no emotional bonding or anything that's happened there. It's not an issue for them. They're just being observed. And they hadn't taken into consideration it's a completely different thing when you have a child that belongs to a family viewed by the family members who they haven't seen in a while, number one, and they're very attached to as a a two-year-old would be with your parents. And that was a pivotal moment in my life because right after my sister was born, my parents wanted to come and check in on me and show me my little sister. And all with good intentions, of course. And as they were standing outside that window and I in the room, as soon as I recognized who it was, I wanted out. I wanted to go home. And so it became quite an emotional ordeal, a lot of clawing at the glass and screaming to join my parents and go home. They, in their youth, was... I mean, they didn't know what they could do. They they felt completely powerless. And it was very upsetting to them. They didn't know what to do. They couldn't just stand there staring at me, so they left. And I remember, I mean, I remember all of it, but I do remember them walking down the hallway with um, their little new bundle in their arms, and that was absolutely devastating to me on an emotional level. That was your basis for what I think anybody could see. (laughs) It's called abandonment. I felt abandoned. And a week or so, 10 days later, when the ear infection had passed and it was time to take me home, um, I remember the nurse taking me by the hand and walking me outside of the areas where we, we were roomed. There were long rooms with lots of little beds in them and high windows. And she walked me out into the hallway, and I recall it was painted green. And So I was very short, so my arm was way up above my head holding her hand, and she walked me out, and we stood still for a moment, and at the other end of the hallway, um, bent down, kind of stooping down to see me, were my parents and my sister, Denise, the baby. The first moment, my heart leapt, especially to see my father's face, because we were always very playful prior to that, you know, in my early, earliest years. 
and everything froze. Something froze inside me. And suddenly I, I realized these are the people that abandoned me. And, of course, we're not talking logic. We're talking a two-year-old. And so I began really, uh, well, I began yelling over and over and over, no, no, screaming, no, I don't want to go with them. And ultimately the nurse got me down there, kind of wrestled me down there, and I went away with them in the taxi. And um, I remained very withdrawn and isolated. I just really observed everyone. So there's no doubt that that was a great emotional pain that was inside me. But being a really strong and resilient soul, I I started adapting to it where I didn't feel it as pain anymore. I just felt it more as independence. I didn't want a lot of interference or interaction. I just wanted to do my own thing and be left alone. And I definitely had some jealousy issues over my sister. It was like, huh, I've been replaced. And so I I would have to deal with that in whatever way I dealt with it um, when I was really little. But mostly I just wanted to do my own thing. And I kind of cut myself free from that moment from the family uh, unintentionally. So the downside was all that lovely, warm nurturing that was there prior to that time wasn't really possible because I wouldn't let anyone that close to me. And one could say that goes on throughout a lifetime, that there's a part of me that will always be a little bit guarded, even though I can get real, I can trust people and be very open with them. And there's still, when you get down to that little kernel, a part that it's difficult to completely you know, turn myself over to anyone else without any kind of uh, thought of how this might impact me down the road. So there is that guard, that guarded bit in there that happens when we feel abandoned. But you see, I see, and this must have been traumatic, and this probably had long-term effects at the same time. You are who you are today. Thankfully for all of us who, who follow your work, that probably was an event that shaped you for who you are today, for being able to go out there and get the, the information without any help. You want to get to the truth. Uh, for example, I, I know that at school, you, you used to get the report cards and it would say, she won't play with others. You were withdrawn. You were observing what was happening around you. Yes. Yes. I became an observer of life. And You know, there were certainly exceptions. I always loved any kind of game. I loved sports. And as I said earlier in the interview, um, I would usually have one really close friend at a time. I didn't like groups of people. I was very self-conscious. So it was easy to speak to one person, very difficult to speak to more than one person. And so um, that meant that my life did become, you know, that of an observer to a large extent. And I also saw... I, I, I could see at the time, and even in hindsight, I started seeing certain propensities which were uh, ordered toward I couldn't stand to see pain in other people. I did not, I couldn't stand to see pain in anything. Maybe because I had been through pain, but I don't, I don't really think so. I think it was just sort of the nature of my soul. I couldn't bear it to see the boys, you know, mischievous little boys in the neighborhood, you know, pulling dogs' tails or frying ants with their magnifying glasses in the sun mm-hmm. or boys being mean to other boys or girls. I, I just, I couldn't stand it. I couldn't bear it. And so 
the boldest thing I would do on occasion was simply step up and just say, please don't do that. Just don't do that. Especially when someone was bullying someone else, I'd often go stand up and say, don't do that. And so that in that way, I did engage in life. And that was all driven because I just couldn't bear the pain. I couldn't stand to see suffering. Empathy. Empathy from a very young age yes. and as you, as you can notice I'm trying to build what I call building the character for for many people who may not know who you are so that they know who who is the person behind the microphone and at the age of seven I think it was and you had some adversities there was found that you had a congenital adrenal condition yeah at one point you, your mother thought that you were asleep but she said something to somebody and you actually overheard what happened tell mm -hmm. tell me more that was very traumatic, actually, and this was, again, now I spent um, my second birthday in the receiving home and then my seventh birthday at uh, Stanford Medical Center Hospital in San Francisco when it was still there. Um, they, it was clear that I wasn't developing in a normal sort of way. I was developing way too fast um, for my age. And as a result, they decided to take me in and start observing me. Draw. I mean, I would have blood drawn two or three times a day, and you know, it was chemically analyzed by the best of them at Stanford, um, only to determine that my body did not create cortisol. It, it's called adrenocortical hyperplasia. It didn't create it in the normal way, which in the early years had the effect also of shunting certain enzymes from one function to another. I don't really know how that works still, but it was enough that it made my whole hormonal system very complicated. And the net effect was that I was told I would never have children, that I would be barren. That doesn't mean that much to you when you're seven. However, um, when the, the incident you're talking about was uh, after I was released from the hospital, I think I was there for about three weeks. And again, this feeling of kind of abandonment, my mother didn't live near there, so I, I real there. They couldn't visit, so I think I only saw them once the whole time I was there. And um, but by then I was cool with it. I just <laughs> I had my favorite things I enjoyed doing in the hospital, and to me it was more. I didn't like being stuck and having blood drawn, but other than that, it was more an adventure than anything. I would ask the nurse if I could ride a wheelchair chair around, and would be tearing <laughs> down the hallways in a wheelchair. And I loved looking at the newborn babies. I'd go there first thing in the morning to see who had been born overnight, and couldn't wait for the grape juice and the graham crackers. And they had loads of games, and you know, it just kind of made myself busy and actually had a, a fairly decent time there because again I wasn't I wasn't tied to going home particularly I wasn't you know I wasn't anxious or anything so um, as that went on um, I got home from the hospital and they had apparently had a private conversation with my parents telling them you know what was going to happen with me and what they had said was that I would be uh, sickly and very tall and um, I remember them saying homely, unattractive, I would never have children. Essentially, I was going to be a freak and I would never marry um, as a result of that. And I was just somehow really different and really undesirable. Now, that message by the age of seven does go in. Mm. And so what happened, I just had this vague sense that I was somehow 
not just, you know, different, even though I looked like a normal person, unlike the other people in the birth defects ward, which there was everything imaginable going on in that ward. I was the only normal-looking person there. But that somehow in the future, I wasn't going to be normal-looking anymore. And my life wasn't going to be normal. And I got, I grok that part when I overheard it. And I had to take cortisone four times a day including at lunchtime. So my mother would pack our little lunch pail and I would have a, a quarter of um, a tablet of the cortisone wrapped up in a little piece of wax paper in the bottom of my lunch bucket. And so as a result, I didn't want to sit with anyone. I didn't, I hadn't, I did not want to be humiliated if anyone should see that tiny little pill and ask me what it was about. Mm. Because A, I wouldn't have been able to tell them. I wouldn't, I wouldn't have even known how to articulate it. It was just this horrible feeling that I was somehow a freak. So that, that was traumatic. That made me feel less than, definitely. And later in life, when... I think you were the the age of 18, you went back to the doctor and they could not explain the fact that, I mean, even look at you now, you're a beautiful woman <laughs> inside and out. I, w I wish they could see you. What did the doctor say? Oh, well, uh, he was shocked. Um, and this was a, di a diagnosing physician at Stanford. So this it was now, what, 11 years later. Hadn't seen him in all those years. And when I came back in, I, he first, he didn't know, he didn't think it was the same patient. And so he looked at his chart and said, and you're Regina? And I said, yes, indeed. And I remember at the time, this was the beginning, it was kind of a little hippie era. I had this soft little outfit of peachy colors, a little skirt and a top and long hair. And, you know, I had a, a nice little figure, five foot four and a half and looked anything but the freak that he had said I was going to be, the overgrown freak. And not only that, I was virtually never ill. I mean, it would be rare other than when I became a teenager and started kind of some poor eating habits and staying up too late. I, I was never ill growing up, so that was wrong, too. They were wrong about everything, actually. And he couldn't understand. He said, what, what happened to you? And I said, I, I don't know. The only thing I can tell you is that I cut back the dosage of the cortisone to half almost, you know, certainly within a couple of years and just went on about my life. Now... Of course, when I look at it from against the, against the doctor's wishes, yes, mm -hmm. aha, okay, yeah, and part of it was because I just didn't want to take the one at noon anymore, so I wouldn't take it. I mean, I was mm. young, I didn't care about these things, and at midnight or before my parents went to bed, they would have to come give me the final one and um for the day and if anyone has ever had cortisone dissolve on their tongue when you take a sleepy child and wake them up and put a little cortisone pill on their tongue if they don't swallow it it is the worst most bitter flavor so i told my parents don't worry about it i'll do that before i go to bed as i you know as i got a little more mature and of course i didn't do that so i ended up just taking half the amount that they had prescribed me and I really think it didn't have anything to do with that in the end. I see it now completely differently than what they originally saw in that those lab uh, tests. Even though it's true, my body does not create uh, anything more than the absolute drip feed minimal level of cortisol just to survive like, on a very slow day. That's all I create. So there's nothing to respond to stress, illness, or anything else. Um, which does have its complications, no doubt. But I've come to see it 
that this all happened for a very different reason. And I think that my body went ahead and developed normally in spite of all of this as more a function of the energy coming from my soul and its directive. And that's why they could never figure it out. You may have changed the course of your life health-wise by simply tapping into to your inner self, if you will. And then later in life, you met who was going to become uh, your first husband. Mm-hmm. And he, he said, I will have a, a child with you. And you said, no, no way. I can't even bear a child. And you did. Yes. And he was quite intuitive, and that's what he had seen. In fact, the night we met, he told his friends he would marry me one day, and I thought, no, I'm just relaxing. That's not what I'm interested in. And um, then within a couple of months, we started dating right away, and then within a couple of months, he said, we're going to have a son together. And that's when I explained to him in brief, uh, that's not going to happen. I can't have children. And by this time, I had already been, you know, sexually active for a few years and didn't bother with birth control because I was told it was impossible and I had never mm-hmm. become pregnant. So I had, every, I had every reason to feel confident that what the doctors had said was true. That said, what was going on is I was having dreams for many years about having this beautiful baby boy And I think the dream started in my teens, my late teens. So this was something that I wanted a child, but I I didn't really give it much thought because it wasn't an option. I figured if I want one, I'll adopt one one day, not to stress over it or worry. But while I was sleeping, I was being visited by a very, very lovely being, and it was playing out in dream time as giving birth to this beautiful perfect little baby boy, which, of course, is what happened. Of course. And then, of course, I'm jumping around in parts of the book, and you always had the question of, like me, where do we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? And the question of human origins. And it seems that, coincidentally, you have talked to some of the people I've talked to, you know, Zachariah Sitchin, Michael Tellinger, Michael Cremo, and so on. But it was Zachariah Sitchin. You started looking into his work. Tell us more of what you learned and the, the, the conclusion you have come up with regarding us as our origin of human beings. Well, as I stated a little while ago, the information coming from that particular being that we call the guardian, that we'll use mm-hmm. that name because they, they, they don't have a name. They said that my name isn't important. It doesn't matter. Call me what you wish. Well, so that gave me a very detailed look at what happened at the very beginning of the formation of the human species as told by that entity. And for some reason, something in me really related to that. I could get that as far out on some levels as it sounded, primarily because of the richness of detail, which doesn't exist anywhere else that I know of. Um, It just felt right. So I looked at it, thought about it, observed humans for a long time, observed myself, thinking with this in the back of my mind, Um, And that really kind of led me to start looking for outside validation on whether or not the species might be, A, far, far older um, than anyone had previously written about that I was aware of anyway, and more. And so, of course, looking at Zechariah Sitchin's work, um, I was made aware of this particular development of the human species in this particular portion of the world that interfaces, as you well know, with Michael Tellinger's work, um, where we're looking at the development of what 
he called a slave species to the Anunnaki. Well, I think what happened for me is it was just validation of a portion of the story that throughout our history there has been participation with other species in our, if you want, for lack of a better word, um, genetic engineering. So that that a species was somehow cobbled together that is now known as human, as evidenced by Zechariah Sitchin's interpretations of um, the the cuneiform texts in Babylonian times and more and beyond that. That was just one. Ref- this was a reference to one era, one place, one type of development. It wasn't the whole enchilada for me because the story that I had been exposed to preceded that by a long way. It preceded before physical presence of human beings on the planet at all. And it did, it, it did detail um, the participation of extraterrestrial species in helping to um, create a suitable vehicle that could be agreed upon that would be a human vehicle. And that, that was... I don't know in time because time passed very differently in the extreme antique periods of history that that we are just now beginning to discover. It didn't pass the same as it does now, but we can certainly say billions of years ago. And you know, many people, there's the camp that, that really follows his work, and there's the other camp who completely dismisses the work of the light Zechariah Sitchin. But mm-hmm. there was a map, a map that uh, you, you, I believe you you mentioned in the book, uh, it was, I believe, 3500 BC, uh, that shows 10 planets, which lends credence to what he was saying. Mm-hmm. But then Michael Tellinger comes along, you know, mm-hmm. new gen- generation, and I love to talk to him because we always say here that we have to de mythologize history. I think there's a concerted effort, Regina. You may or may not agree with me, but I think academia and school and the educational system wants to go back 2,000 years and stay there. Let's not go back beyond that because maybe history and humans did not exist. And all these researchers are proving this to be absolutely wrong. And yeah. academia shuns them in a way, don't you think? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that's uh, that's why I included um, my talk with and some of Michael Tellinger's work and background in the book leading up to Michael Cremo. Now, that, I think the, the closing statement I used from him in that chapter on the book, which I titled Filtering uh, Our History, mm-hmm. is what Michael said was that when the species, when the human species comes to understand that we're not simply an extension of another animal-like species, in this case apes, that Darwinian theory doesn't hold water any longer, then it starts opening us to the big question, well then who are we? What are we? And as he says, the various structures really don't want us asking those questions at this time because too much is at stake. Once you ask that question, for example, the the way I detailed the origins of the species in the book, once you start going back to that place, you realize that we are all incredibly intelligent and connected, cosmically connected, and highly creative beings at our core, every single one of us. And with that, how do you hold that kind of species down into something manageable? Much easier if you just say, you've evolved from apes, don't look any further, go to church, be a good girl. No, mm-mm. 
I don't buy that, and I agree with you 100%. I think it's, it's not necessarily all of the people that are sharing these stories are part of a conspiracy. It's just the way they've been taught, and they believe it. So they're just passing on what's been passed to them for the most part. But at some other much deeper, higher level, yes, I absolutely agree with you and our beloved brother David Icke and many others that there has been a an intentional, at a high level, an an intentional manipulation to keep us unaware of what we truly are. Now, why is it so difficult to comprehend, to, to even fathom, that the pyramids are there? We can't even come close today to replicating what they did thousands of years ago. Why is it so difficult to maybe uh, theorize, at least, that we are a creation of somebody or a group of people, maybe, can we clone people today? Can we clone animals today? Yes, but many people consider that to be evil. As Michael Tellinger, I think, said, you know, if you have a cat or if you have a yeah. dog <laughs> yeah. and it dies, and then you have the ability to go to, to this lab and clone the animal because you love them so much, it won't be the same, but you want to. How is that evil? Exactly. We have, uh, we well, we have a, a, a structure in place that has definitely demonized the notion of cloning on any level. I mean, everybody has their own very personal viewpoints about it. But for me, it comes down to this. If we are first a soul that is simply occupying a vehicle for a determined period of time that moves on through a, the cycle or the wheel of incarnations, as Amika Swami would call it, then what difference does it make? You want to have a vehicle, so to speak, a body um, that can accommodate what your soul is here to express and is capable of expressing, and one that can easily take whatever blueprint you've created over a number of series of incarnations or experiences even beyond Earth, one that can accommodate those experiences for the expression you choose at this time. Now, if, as you read in this origin story, if we are this incredible being that's been hybridized and blended with a, an animal form or human body, then why, why is this something that, why do we see this as an, a negative if it gives us a higher range of expression, a higher form of intelligence? I don't understand that. If you're just an independent thinking person, I definitely understand why it's a problem to uh, embrace this notion again if you're in control of large structures that want to keep humanity um, moving forward at their discretion in an orderly fashion. You see what I'm saying? Sure. And we have to take our one and only intermission, Regina, but I have to tell you folks, this is one book that you want to buy. The summer is coming. It is full, full of great stuff. You have included here a great compilation of your journey, and that's why I love to talk to people like Regina, because she goes out there to what matters to all of us in every single topic that is under the sun, and I love that. And the book is divided into a few parts. We're still touching the part about becoming human. I want to touch more of that. I want to touch the being human. And you also have the third part, which is about the future human. Solo journey. Regina, how do people get it? 
they can go to either reginameredith.com, you'll see a page dedicated to that, or they can go to our site, Conscious Media Network, which is cmn.tv, and they'll see a picture of me and the cover of the book there and click through there. And right now it's available in all e-formats for Kindle readers or if you would prefer, you know, a device like your iPad, it's there. PDF, uh, downloadable PDF, all of the above. Everything but print, which will likely happen, but at a little later date. And one last piece of advice. Turn off the subliminal tube and subscribe to CMN.TV. These are professional people and the people that I aspire very test to be. So I'm honored. But when we come back, we have so much more to discuss with Regina Meredith. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you very much for listening to the first segment of this interview. We will continue with segment two with our special guest in the Veritas member section. Just go to our website, veritasradio.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with segment two in the member section. Enjoy.
This is Dolores Cannon, and you're listening to Veritas, which means truth. That's what it means. (laughs) 